0: Some of you have become good friends over the weekend conference, others of you are brand new in my life this morning, but in both cases I'm thrilled to be able to stand before you and proclaim the Word of God. Now, you need to know that I've come to the service this morning feeling a little insecure. You see, I'm going to be preaching directed toward younger generation, especially teenagers and college students. And I thought to myself, standing before teenagers and college students, they're going to take one look at me and they're going to say, boring, old, boring. And so I was feeling insecure about that. I thought, you know, the parents during the weekend conference, they won't care, you know, they'll take anybody looking anyway. But I thought to stand up in front of the young people, they're not going to relate to me at all. So I did it. After our session yesterday morning, I went to the huge mall, I bought my first pair of skinny jeans yesterday afternoon. (laughs) I thought I'm going to walk in there Sunday morning in skinny jeans and those young people will say, okay, that's a little bit interesting, maybe we'll pay attention. But things did not go well at the hotel this morning. Have you ever tried to pull skinny jeans over adult diapers? You ever tried to do that before? (laughs) I mean, it was an absolute disaster this morning, so I had to abandon my skinny jeans and just came in my old pants. I hope that's going to work this morning. At least you know now the message is going to be brief. It can't be, (laughs) and some of you are thinking, I cannot believe that man is saying that in church. (laughs) Uh, I think we're going to have a good time this morning. Adults, I do want to say, even though the direction of my message is going to be toward those that are younger I'm certainly inviting you adults to kind of listen in, and I think there will actually be something even for you adults this morning. Hasn't it been an incredible two years that we have just been through? My, oh my, I don't even need to go through the details of all of that because all of you lived it while I was living it. Pandemic was bad enough. Uh, I'm not going to belabor this point, but my own brother, younger brother, died of COVID. One of my precious young people from a youth group of past years passed away this year. My brother dying of COVID by himself. We couldn't even be in the room. I mean, so many of you have stories just like that. A church in my town in Fort Worth, Texas, a little bit larger church, they have senior adults in their church and 40 of their senior adults passed away this year from COVID in one congregation, 40 adults. That would have been bad enough. But over this same, let's say, two-year period, we went through a, a political campaign. And of course, we've had political campaigns in the past, but I don't remember one where people were so angry they could have killed each other just in the midst of a campaign. Also during this same year, of course, we've gone through great upheaval related to racial issues, injustice, police issues. All of that has created controversy. It's created tension. It's made everybody kind of live on the edge. On top of all of that, we've even seen new, new immorality. And and I would have to just confess this morning so often when we talk about immorality, you know, we're looking at young people, but I would say the immorality among the adults equals anything the young people have come up with. In fact, people that are supposedly leaders in our society, people that are very visible, some of them are the least moral. And we watch all of that and we think, how on earth is this possible? I think you would agree with me, in some ways, in some ways, even during the last couple of years, I think we have seen an acceleration of a nation turning away from God. I think it's it's accelerated some, uh, even in these recent days. Not every person, I mean, look at the congregation this morning. Y'all are in love with Jesus, you love His kingdom, of course. Those people exist all over the country. But but if you look at the overall nation, the overall tenor of the nation, in many ways there has been a further turning away from God. Now here is a word of good news I want to bring to you out of all of that. Disease and anger and immorality and all kinds of things that trouble us. Here's the good news. In centuries past, when things have gotten the darkest... That's when God has shown up with revival. I just wonder, would He give us permission this morning to consider the possibility that revival might come in our day? Now, I have no prophecy from God. He has not written on a wall in front of me. So I can't say to you, oh, in 13 months from today, to revi- I don't know. But I do know when things have been this dark in the past and his people have prayed, (laughs) revival has come. Now really, this is what I'm going to, to raise for you to consider this morning. If a great revival were to lead us back to God, is it possible that these young people could be at the forefront of that revival? Parents, grandparents, let me just be a little bit more personal Could it be that a member of your family would be used of God to lead a people in revival? That's an exciting thing to think about. Now some of you might say, Brother Richard, you ought to come to my house. My kids are kind of normal kids. I know the young people at church. They're just kind of typical young people. Well, you see, revival doesn't depend on extraordinary people. It depends on an extraordinary God. The power is God's. But He has shown a tendency in centuries past, in the earliest moments of a revival, he has had a tendency to spring that revival forward with young people. And I think he would allow us this morning to at least consider the possibility that these who are young could be used of God to turn a nation back to Him a familiar passage from Psalm 24. This is the generation of them that seek Him, that seek Thy face, O God of Jacob. I just wonder in 2021, would it be okay for us to consider the possibility that that verse in our day might happen to refer to people that we would call teenagers and college students? Now we're going to have a a lengthy study through a passage of Scripture. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But I need to make sure that some of you know what I'm even talking about this morning when I say revival. That's not a term that we use all the time. What does it mean when a revival comes? Well, let me just quickly give you several characteristics of a period of revival, and then we'll go straight to the Scripture. Revival always includes a solemn sense of the presence of God. A solemn sense of of the presence of God. And you say, Brother Richard, what does that mean? Let me take you back over 100 years to New York City. Now there's a city that needed revival, and they had a great revival in New York City. And during that great revival, the presence of God was tangibly present in the city. So much so that sailing ships coming into New York Harbor with no communication. There was no ship to shore radio in those days. There was no communication that would allow those ships to know revival has broken out in New York. And yet we have clear historical records when those ships would pull up to the dock... In many cases, those drunken, cursing sailors would fall down on the decks of the ship and begin to cry out to God for mercy. And you say, how is that possible? They didn't know anything was going on. Well, they were falling down and praying because of a tangible sense of the presence of God. In that same revival, there were several noteworthy pastors that were really proclaiming the truth of God's Word in revival. But nobody knew them. They weren't on television. They were just preaching. And yet when those particular preachers would be walking down the streets of downtown Manhattan, they would often pass people who would just again fall down on their knees and start crying and praying. Why? Because of an awesome sense of the presence of God. Now, I'm not not trying to be facetious here and I'm trying to say this respectfully but if revival came to Honolulu you could be in Walmart taking care of your business and you would just look around and say I've been here a hundred times it is quieter here today now there are shoppers and people are getting what they need but it's just quiet in here people are hardly talking why would that be the case because even lost people can just sense somehow God has just settled on this place. In revival, there's a solemn sense of the presence of God. Number two, there is a brokenness over sin. And I'm not really talking about some neurotic guilt sort of thing. I'm not really talking about a neurosis. I'm talking about when people see God as He is when they see His majesty, all of a sudden things that are in their lives that they've been overlooking suddenly look terribly wrong. If a revival comes to Honolulu, if a revival comes to this church, during services I can promise you you're going to see people kneeling here at the front, maybe weeping, but basically saying, I am so in love with God, He has become so real to me that there is now something in my life that looks terribly out of place, I'm grieving over that, and I want God to remove this thing from my life. That is just typical during a revival. There's also radical obedience, radical obedience. In revival, God prompts people to do particular things. Sometimes He will even say, I want you to sell your home. I want you to move over here and be part of a new ministry, something I'm going to do over there. And people just put a for sale sign in their yard the next day. They just do Whatever God says, do. People are radical in their obedience to God. In revival, there's also a hunger for prayer. Now, now we all enjoy praying here in the worship service. Many of you were in Bible classes this morning and you had prayer. We all enjoy that. But in revival, that's not enough. My wife, LaWanna, and I were in a period of revival in the church in the state of Tennessee. God did a wonderful, fresh thing in our church, and I would call that revival. And there was a period of time when the men said, You know, the ladies are closer to God right now than we are. We we need to pray and catch up a little bit. And the men used to gather down in the basement of the church. And I remember the first night we prayed, the men all started sitting on folding chairs. A little bit later, they were all kneeling in front of a folding chair. A little bit later... Men's faces were in the carpet praying and weeping over their families, over their lives. And we were all surprised when God finally dismissed us from that prayer meeting. And we went out on the church parking lot and noticed that the sun was rising. Those men rushed home, got a quick shower, and went straight to work, having prayed all night long. In revival, there is a hunger for prayer, There's also a strong belief in Scripture in the Bible. When it's not revival, I'm sorry to say, sometimes religious people start doubting the Bible. They might say, oh, that miracle, that couldn't have possibly happened. That's probably just a little fable. Oh, this or that? No, that couldn't happen in the Bible. But in revival, all of that kind of talk goes away. People hold the Word of God, and they believe it is the Word of God. Now, of course, things are a little bit different today with phones and tablets. But even in recent revivals, there would be young people at school with an actual Bible on their top of their desk because they were hoping maybe the teacher will give us a free reading period or something, and I'll have time to get back in my Bible. In other words, during revival, people respect the Word of God. They enjoy the Word of God. They turn to the Word of God. It is a characteristic of revival. Now, have you ever heard the term spiritual awakening? How is a spiritual awakening different from a revival? Well, I want to just briefly mention to you Revival comes to the church. Revival is something that happens to God's people. The church itself is revived. But sometimes people so caught up with God in revival carry that message outside the church and they begin to have conversations with friends and neighbors about Jesus and they begin living holy lives in front of their neighbors and all of a sudden that which was taking place in the church spills into the community. When we call something a spiritual awakening, we're talking about historically large in-gatherings of new people into the kingdom of God. People being saved in very large numbers. Usually baptism services that last hours to just baptize everybody. Churches having to add additional services on Sunday morning to get everybody from the community to come in. That is a spiritual awakening. Because so many people get saved so fast in the spiritual awakening, it even changes the culture. Businesses that sold bad things go bankrupt because so many people have met Christ that they don't want to buy bad things anymore. I guess a more contemporary way of saying that would be, can you imagine the worst of the websites trying anything they can to get somebody's credit card by showing images they should never show. Can you imagine so many people meeting Jesus that those websites would go bankrupt because nobody wants to give them a credit card anymore? That is a spiritual awakening. And I'm willing to pray for that in our day. I'm willing to pray for God, come to your people first with revival, but then just spread out there and change the culture. Did you know in spiritual awakenings in the past, the laws of countries have changed? Did you know in spiritual awakenings of the past, prisons have gone empty because not very many people were committing crimes anymore? Do you have faith to believe something like that could happen in our day? It can. And people just like you alive in previous years, have seen this with their own eyes. Now, all of that is preparatory for me to say to you, God can start a revival any way He wants to. If He wants to start the next revival among first graders, He could do that. If He wants to start the next revival among the senior adults of the church, He certainly could do that. But this morning I think God is giving me permission to just raise the possibility that the next revival might begin the way the others so often have through history with the young people. Now for me to even say that, I know I'm getting the attention of those that are 12 or 14 or 18 or 22. I know now I have your attention. So let me just say to those of you that are listening as a younger person, Do you have enough faith to believe that somebody in middle school could be used of God to help start a revival? Do you have enough faith to believe that? Would it give you more faith if I showed you in Scripture when God has done that in the past? Now we're ready to do some Scripture study. Turn to 2 Chronicles 34, Old Testament. It's very easy to find 2 Chronicles. Just find 1 Chronicles and flip over a couple of pages. It's not hard at all. 2 Chronicles 34. A fascinating story about a young man named Josiah. Josiah. Those of you that are 8, those of you that are 16, those of you that are 20, you're going to find all three of those ages reflected in this story. It's going to be interesting. I'm giving you time to turn. ...to 2 Chronicles 34. Now let me set the stage. At this point, the nation of Israel had turned away from God. Dramatically, they had turned away from God. I can't even begin to tell you how horrible the the Israelites were acting in these days. They were imitating the pagan nations around them... ...which meant they were starting to imitate cultic worship... ...that they had picked up from these other neighboring countries... Every time the ground created a little swell or a little hill, they assumed that that was supernaturally important, and so they would make a little shrine over that high place, and they would perform pagan worship right there. In other cases, the Jewish people, I'm talking about the Jewish people, would create some little tabernacle or temple thing. Do you know what worship was on Sunday morning? people would bring money in one of those shrine things and they would put their money at the front and then they would take, let me just be vague here, they would take a person of ill repute who worked in the temple as so-called a priestess and they would take that individual into a little room where something bad would happen. Am I communicating with you? That was going to church. In the Holy of Holies... In this period of time, there was graffiti on the wall of the Holy of Holies. I mean, it had been desecrated. It just couldn't have gotten much worse than what it was in this day. Now, there was a really bad king. In fact, he was such a bad king, he was hated so much that the people in the palace that worked for him walked in one day and stabbed him to death. His own followers stabbed him to death. So we've got a dead king. Now we don't have time for his son to grow up and be an adult king. So Josiah, the son has to become king at age 8 because his dad's just been murdered. So now we're going to have a boy king. Now we're ready to read at verse 1. Josiah was 8 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his, actually David his ancestor, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. In other words, Josiah had a heart for God. We're not completely sure how he he learned to love God so much. It could have been his granddad. His granddad in his later years did turn his heart to God. So maybe granddad was influencing his grandson. It certainly wasn't the dad. He was horrible. But one way or another, Josiah had a heart for God. He had a heart for righteousness. Now watch. In the eighth year of his reign, okay, how old would he be? Eight plus eight is 16. 16 16-year-olds, I'm talking to you right now. In the eighth year of his reign, when he was 16, while he was still a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, and the carved and the metal images. Okay, I need to break all this down for you. The high places were those lumps of ground where something sacred had been built and he would destroy that or he would have his workers destroy that. The ashram were kind of like an obelisk. You know the Washington Monument? That's an example of an obelisk. The ashram were obelisk and some biblical archaeologists think that the ashram, I, I can't even say this in church, but some biblical archaeologists think the Asherim were filthy images. They were carved as filthy images, right there in the city square. Can you imagine people walking around saying, oh yeah, that's, that's something that we worship. Well, he brought all those down. The carved in the metal images, once again, from pagan worship. And Josiah, the teenager, says all of that's going to go away. Verse 4, And they chopped down the altars, of the Baals in his presence, and cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them, and he scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them, in other words, those that were leading out in this pagan cultic worship he was putting them in graves and then he was spreading this filthy stuff over those graves verse 5 he also burned the bones of the priests on the altars and cleansed judah and jerusalem now we're talking about pagan priests here not the priests of god the 16 year old who was turning 17 and 18 and 19 through this whole period he said i will do what i can do to restore a nation back to god Now we're not going to read every single verse, so let me just summarize a little bit for you. Josiah said, the temple is in disrepair, it's terrible, I want you to clean everything up, it's going to be a house of God again. But in the cleaning process, somebody with a big broom, I guess, bumped against a scroll and they discovered the word of God. Now, Josiah did know biblical truth. I mean, he understood what God was like, but he didn't actually have a copy of the scrolls before him until this scroll was found in the temple. He commanded that that would be read to him. As the actual word of God was being read to him, it broke his heart absolutely in two. He proclaimed that that should be read to the people, the people in very Near Eastern fashion, were weeping and tearing their clothes. They would take handfuls of sand, throw them up in the air. It was a heartbroken nation realizing the depth of their sin and turning their hearts back to God. The temple was restored. It was dedicated again. People began to worship God correctly there. And Josiah said, have y'all noticed that we haven't even been observing the Passover. Can you imagine the Jewish people not even doing Passover? Well, they hadn't done it for years. The Bible says the next Passover under Josiah was the greatest observance of the Passover in all of Jewish history. Let me summarize. Among the people of God, that's my qualification now, among the people of God, The greatest revival in the entire Old Testament was the revival under Josiah. And that greatest of all revivals was sparked by one teenager. And you might say, okay, Brother Richard, interesting story, but you know the Bible. I mean, all kinds of things happened in the Bible. That's not really like our day. Well, how about I give you some updated stories? Let's go back to 1720. 1720, the country was Germany. They were in the tank, morally and spiritually. They were in a mess just like the United States is today. And one 16-year-old cared about that. His name was Nick, actually Nikola Zinzendorf. And that 16-year-old got five friends together, and they formed a prayer group at school. And those five teenagers started praying for a revival to come. I can't explain to you why God heard their prayer and why he responded to their prayer, but he did. He listened to the prayers of six teenagers, and revival fell on the country of Germany, spread across Germany, and it actually did not stop with the borders of Germany. That particular revival covered most of Europe, and it started with one 16-year-old. Twenty years later, we call it the First Great Awakening. Many of you have heard that phrase, the First Great Awakening. It affected much of Europe. It certainly affected the United States. There was a great preacher of the First Great Awakening. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Some of you know that name. Not only was Jonathan Edwards a preacher, he was also a meticulous historian. He wrote down the history of the First Great Awakening. I found one of his statements in our library at the seminary. This is exactly what the historian said in the midst of the First Great Awakening. Listen, these are his exact words. And indeed, it has commonly been so, when God has begun any great work for the revival of his church, he has taken the young people and has cast off the old and the stiff-necked generation. Now, adults, I don't think we have to be part of the old and stiff-necked generation. I think we adults can choose to be a part of something fresh that God does. But the historian says, this is the way it's always started. It has started with the young people. A few few years later, we call that the Second Great Awakening. Laws changed in the United States. Slavery was impacted. Many things were affected by the Second Great Awakening. Do you know where every instance of the Second Great Awakening burst forth in the United States? Every instance of revival started on a college campus with 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds who had hearts for God, and they became the spark of the Second Great Awakening. What about the Global Awakening? I'm becoming more current all the time. 1904, 1905, 1906... Did you even know that once in earth history there had been revival around the world? Did you you know that? Every continent was in revival at the same time. And you might ask yourself, well, how on earth do you get revival started worldwide? You don't have television, you don't have radio, you don't have the internet. How do you do that? All of that revival can be traced back to the little country of Wales. You know, near England, little country. A very middle-sized town in Wales, New Cardiganshire, and a very average church with a young pastor named Joseph Jenkins. Now that youth pastor, that pastor did not have a youth pastor, really didn't have any youth workers. So that pastor got in the habit after the main service, he would take that little ragtag group of teenagers down the hall and he would have some kind of program just for them. On a particular Sunday, after the pastor had taken the young people to a separate room, we know he asked them a question. We know all of this because actually somebody wrote on a piece of paper exactly what happened. We know that Joseph Jenkins stood before that little handful of young people, and he said, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? We also know for a moment nobody said anything. You know, teenagers do that sometimes. They just sort of stare at you. And for a moment, nobody said anything. Flory Evans could not stay quiet for very long. Now, Flory was not 16. She was 14. We know that she was poor. Probably her clothes were not as nice as the other girls. We also know that Flory was shy. Well, you know, if the other teenagers are not answering the question, and if you're shy anyway, your tendency would be to just kind of be quiet, but she couldn't do it. We actually know that she stood to her feet, and with a clear voice, she said... If no one else will, then I must say I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart. I can't explain it. Why would God decide in that moment to touch that young lady in that little youth group? But He did. They were weeping. They were crying. They were praying. Soon that spirit of revival spread out into the rest of the church. Soon the other churches in town... And then that revival began to jump all of the oceans to all of the continents. And for one brief period of time, the whole world was in revival together. Those of you with a Korean background know all about the Korean revival. It was a direct outgrowth of worldwide revival started by one teenager. Could God do that again? Could He do it in our day? Could he use somebody in your house to be part of that kind of revival? I want to say to you young people something very, very important and something very clear. Even if you listen to stories like that and think, that is thrilling, that's wonderful, I had almost given up on the United States, but who knows, maybe a revival is possible. You can have a conviction that this is possible But what you cannot do coming out of that conviction is to say, then I think we ought to get up and start a revival. You can't do that. No human being can just decide to start a revival. Nobody can go to a Christian bookstore and try to buy a box that says, seven easy steps to starting a revival. A revival is a sovereign act of God. He sends revival when He chooses, where He chooses, and how He chooses. You say, well, Brother also, if that's the truth, if God's going to do what He's going to do, why, why would you even bring the subject up this morning? Because of this. Even though you cannot make the winds of revival blow, what any of you can do is raise your sails so that if the winds of revival blow in this place, you will go with God. Now the analogy I'm using, of course, are the great sailing ships of a previous era. Those sailors sitting in some harbor needing to go somewhere else, they couldn't make that ship just go. They had to sit there and wait for the correct wind to blow. But if the correct wind came that would have taken them out of that harbor and the sails were down, they didn't go anywhere. Fourteen-year-old, Are 84-year-old, the issue is exactly the same. You can't manufacture a revival this morning, but you can say, I want to live with my sails up such that if God should honor us with the winds of revival, I would go with God. Okay, practically speaking, what does it mean to raise your sails for revival? What does that really mean? Let me break it down for you. Number one, you need to to raise the sales in your own life. In your own life. You raise the sales in your own life. Part of that is your life of prayer. Now, I'm not trying to make people feel guilty this morning, but let me just ask you a straightforward question. Yesterday morning, in your time of prayer, yesterday morning, did you or did you not pray for revival to come to this land? Last week, did you ever pray for revival? Last year, did you ever pray for revival? Look at me, just look here. If I'm God and I'm leaning over the edge of heaven and I'm looking at an absolutely corrupt United States and I'm kind of thinking, revival or judgment? Revival or judgment? Why would I choose to send revival instead of the judgment that these people deserve if nobody's asking me for revival? I just wonder, those of you of every age group this morning, I just wonder if one change you could immediately make is to say, I do pray every morning, I do worship God every morning in prayer, I am going to add to my prayer prayers for revival. That is part of raising the sales for revival. Second thing I want to say to you is this, know the Scripture. You ought to be motivated to know the Scripture. Now part of that is you just make a decision, I'm going to be in Bible study, whenever our church studies the Bible, I'm going to be there, I'm not going to goof off, I'm not going to miss sessions. I want to know the Word of God because that's part of me keeping my sails up for revival. God is never going to lead you in revival any place that is inconsistent with His Word. Do you believe that? Whatever He does in you or through you in revival, it will be consistent with His Word. You need to know the Scripture. Another part of raising your sails is to live in holiness and righteousness. Now, of course, you can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do that in your own strength. But you can say, Lord Jesus, I am confessing to you, I cannot be caught up in immorality and impurity and have my sails up for revival. These devices that we have in our homes that are valuable to us in many ways, we have to make some hard decisions. Do I want my sails up for revival or do I want to use this device to do some unspeakable things that would corrupt my heart and make it almost impossible for me to hear and respond to whatever God wants to do in me. I'm calling you to live in holiness and purity by the power of the Spirit of God. Another part of raising yourselves is to live with boldness. You can be a 12-year-old boy or girl, younger than the other teenagers, and you can be bold for Jesus. I don't mean mean. I'm not talking about being antagonistic. I'm just saying you're willing to stand up for your faith. You're willing to be bold for Christ. When he says, I want you to do this or that for me, you just say, yes, sir, I would be glad to do anything that you ask me to do. Live with boldness. A second part of raising your sails for revival is praying with others. I mentioned praying by yourself. Now I'm referring to praying with others those of you that are in some kind of Bible class or Bible fellowship in this church, I'm asking you right now, would you guys just make a decision that it's going to be a weekly part of your Bible class, your Bible study, that part of our time is going to be praying for revival? Once again, why would God send revival if nobody is asking Him to? And we know it's scriptural, where two or three unite their voices in prayer, there's more power to that prayer. So I'm just asking you to find people to pray with for revival. Now, young people, I'm going to say something pointed to you. God bless your youth leaders that work with you. God bless the sacrifices that they make to work with the young people. But teenagers, I want to ask you, do you have to have an adult call you to prayer for you to pray for revival? Is it possible that teenagers can say to teenagers, hey, did y'all notice what was in the news this week? Boy, that's horrible. That's terrible. Man, we need a revival. Could, Could we just sit down right now and pray for revival? I'm telling you, it would thrill God Almighty to look down on this church and this church's ministry and say, I see in that church Young people who are choosing on their own are choosing to pray for revival. Third, the third part of raising sales is change your view of Jesus. Change your view of Jesus. Now those of you that were at the conference will give me permission to just briefly touch on this theme. Young people, listen to me, young people. 12 years ago, 18 years ago, There was a theory of child-rearing that sounded good on the surface, but it has not turned out this well. That theory of child-rearing that started just about the time you guys were being born, that theory of child-rearing was, Oh, children are so fragile. Their little self-esteem is so fragile. Oh, if you do not tell a child that he or she is the most important person on the earth, that child is going to be deeply depressed, probably commit suicide when they're two. It's going to be terrible. We have to convince these babies and children and everybody else that they are so important and so special. Well, since that was kind of the theory of child rearing, you know, moms and dads just sort of paying attention to the quote authorities and moms and dads say, well, I guess, I guess they're probably right. So young people, you came along during a period when not only parents, but even teachers and community leaders and coaches and and a lot of people just had it in the back of their mind. Every child I, I see, every child I work with, I've got to convince them that they're kind of the center of the universe. So, you know, moms and dads, they're out there videoing every game, every sport, every activity. Maybe eventually you get some ribbons and trophies. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily that your parents, you know, put your little trophies on the mantle of the fireplace. You know, I'm not saying that was a bad thing, but maybe putting candles around your trophies, maybe that was a little bit over the top. You know, the neighbors looking through your front door, seeing all those candles burning, they're saying, there's a cult in there. I know there's a cult in there. Look at all them candles. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you understand exactly what I'm saying. In fact, a lot of you young people would say, Brother Richard, you are making a joke, but we know what you're talking about. Everybody's been telling us, oh, you're so special, you're so important. Okay, during the time that the culture was saying that to you, in that era, what were people saying about Jesus? Jesus. Now, some of you that are young remember going to Bible class when you were small. I mean small. And even now, you can remember in those Bible classes, those big, beautiful Bible pictures. You remember those? Some of you would say this morning, Brother Richard, I still remember exactly some of those pictures that we used to have when I was a child in Bible class. Okay, do you remember that particular poster? Do you remember the picture that showed Jesus on the throne of heaven, lightning above him, powerful? Do you remember that particular picture? No, you don't. The reason I know you don't is because it doesn't exist. I went to the place that makes those pictures, and I literally asked the people, have you ever done a picture that shows Jesus as the king of the universe, great in power? And those people hung their heads, and they said, Mr. Ross, it never occurred to us to make that picture. Young people, if your mom and dad were were believers when you were small, I'll bet you when you were two, i bet you they came to your bed, probably read you a Bible story, said a prayer with you, something like that. Do you remember the night your parents opened the Bible story book and they showed you once again the story about Jesus becoming the king of heaven, reigning king? No, you don't remember that story. When I go to Christian bookstores, I make a beeline for that section that has children's bedtime stories. I'm always looking for some story about Jesus being a great king. It's never there. Okay, young people, you have good minds. Put two and two together. You grow up in a day when everybody says, oh, you're so special, you're a really, really big deal. And in that era, down at the church, nobody's saying that Jesus is really that big a deal. You put all that together, and you know what you could conclude? Maybe I'm kind of more important than Jesus. Maybe... I have little Jesus in my pocket. Maybe Jesus is my little friend, my little pal, my little buddy. I like having him go around with me, but he stays in my pocket most of the time because I don't intend for him to have anything to say about how I live my life. If I want to cuss at school, that's not his business. He stays in my pocket If I'm a boy and I'm going out on prom, I can put little Jesus way down in my tux pocket because I sure don't expect him to have an opinion about what I plan to do with my girlfriend tonight. It's just a little Jesus. Young people, I'm asking you this morning, is there any possibility that you would say, I do love Jesus, I do belong to him, but my view of him has been small? That means you are not prepared for revival. You can't be useful to God in leading revival unless you understand that He is King of kings and Lord of Lords. Young people, as I speak to you this morning about raising your sales, the third challenge related to raising your sales is, change your view. Of Jesus. I want to just read to you from Philippians. Speaking of Jesus, therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Young people, let me just ask you, would you say this past week in my prayer time, I felt like I was standing before the throne of heaven. I felt like I was speaking to royalty every time I prayed this week. Has that been on your mind? When you had a decision to make this week and you had to choose A or B, am I going to do this or am I going to do that? Did you have a sense that I am depending on the king of the universe to direct my decision. Young people, you figure out who Jesus really is reigning in high, on high, King of kings and Lord of lords, and that will be the finest preparation you can make for revival. You know, for the next five or six minutes, I'm not going to say anything using Richard Ross's words. That's kind of unusual. For the next five minutes, all you're going to hear is Holy Scripture. But I just wonder, young people, and by the way, adults, I just wonder if piecing together Scripture in a new way will help you sense the kingly glory of Jesus. And I wonder if for all the generations this morning, a clearer view of Christ could be part of all of you raising your sails for revival. Listen to the reading of God's Word. And when they came to the place, which is called the skull, there they crucified Him. The Lord was pleased to crush Him, smitten of God. He laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ died for sins to bring us to God. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new tomb. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He is not here, for He has risen. Now to the apostles, Jesus presented Himself alive after His suffering, appearing to them over a period of forty days. He led them out as far as Bethany, and He lifted up His hands, and He blessed them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now after He said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. He was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet. And girded across his chest was a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, and his eyes were like flames of fire. And God said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The grace of God has appeared. "...bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Now when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all of His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another. Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, accursed ones into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. But then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Behold, I am coming soon. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This Jesus or this Jesus? The choice you make between those two will determine whether your sales are ready for revival.